Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church podcast. For more information about Redemption Church, please visit redemptionokc.com. You can stay up to date on sermons by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have given us your word. Thank you that you have not left us unto ourselves to grope in the darkness and find our way through, um, through this life. Father, thank you that you continue to engage your people by your Holy Spirit. Father, I pray that you would open the eyes of our heart, that you'd open the eyes of our minds, that we might see you more clearly and trust you more fully today. Father, we pray it through your Son and by your Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Timothy or your device or wherever it is you want to do that. We are working our way through this book of 1 Timothy. And as we do, I want to encourage you to get into the text, to dive into it for yourself. And we've put some resources out. We really love for you to just own that book as we work our way through this and kind of go verse by verse through there with us because we think it's an important thing for us to do. Let me just tell you where we've been the last few weeks. The last few weeks we've been uh, as we kind of went through 1 Timothy 1, we really saw that God has given the church kind of guardrails of his doctrine and his truth to keep us on the right path so that we might find a way to joy, to rest, to new life, to forever life. And, and, and really the, the, the context of 1 Timothy 1 is there's false teachers that have arisen. There's false ideas that are starting to bubble up and they're, they're starting to influence the church. And so Paul's stepping in and saying, no, don't let anyone lead you astray. And he's setting up some guardrails and keeping people on the right path of the gospel that we are saved by grace through faith alone, that there is no other way of salvation. And since that is the message that brings us truth, uh, then that's the thing that we need to be focused on as a people of God. And so he says, hold fast to the truth. Do not let anyone lead you astray. Chapter two, then we began and said, what, what do we do with this message of grace? This message that we're supposed to guard, that we're supposed to protect, that we're supposed to build our lives around. What do we actually do with it? And so last week we said that, uh, that we are to pray. We're to pray for all peoples, that somehow having the truth doesn't mean that we kind of move away and go into a holy huddle. We don't kind of roll, pull up into a monastery and, and shelter ourselves and hide from the world, but we stay engaged with the world. In fact, it says, pray for all people. It says God desires for all people to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth. And so we don't acquiesce truth in order to save people because that's not possible because the message of salvation is the thing that brings uh, the message of the truth is actually what brings salvation. So we need to pray that people would trust him, that we stay engaged and we love them. And Paul says, this is my mission, that I've been sent to proclaim the good news, the truth of the gospel to all peoples. And so that really sets the tone for who we are as a church. But it's interesting because we know in the world that there are, there's worldly people. In the world, there are sinful people. In the world, there are people who have given themselves to sin. And yet we don't need to be afraid of that, right? Because Paul says, uh, this is the gospel that Christ came to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Paul lumps himself in with the sinners and says, hey, I'm one of those dudes too. And so I don't need to fear sinners, I'm one of them. Um, but somehow I need to pray that all sinners would come to knowledge of the truth and they would also be saved, that they might spend eternity with us. And so we, uh, we intercede for others, we love others, we care for them. And now Paul moves in a different direction. He says, who is supposed to proclaim this mission of the gospel? Well, there's a sense in which we all do, but there's also a sense in which the church is called to proclaim the gospel in a certain way. And there's some ordained means by which that happens. And so if we're gonna experience rest, enjoying God's mission. We have to trust God's mission, God's word and, and his direction and his design for us. So let me read with us the text uh, that we are going to work our way through today. And if you, uh, if you guys have been paying attention, you've looked ahead, you're going, oh man, we've got some triggers in here. We're going to have some fun with this passage. So let's get after it. I desire then that in every place men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire, but with that which is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. 
I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. And yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, in love, and holiness with self-control. This is the word of the Lord, and welcome to Redemption Church. Um, just want to say this up front. If you've got questions after the service, um, Cheryl Lang and Audra Swindell will be available to answer those. And so you look them up, and uh, we'll make sure that they take good care of you. Um, so verse 8, he starts off, and he says, I want men to pray with holy hands lifted up. Like, for some of us, that's a big enough challenge. Like, already we're like, I'm out. Can't do it. Not going there. And yet, it's pretty clear. Like, it's not hard to understand what he's saying there, right? Pray, holy hands, lift it up. It, that you are called to, to lead out in prayer, that this is something we're to be about. And really, this verse serves as a transition from what we said last week. Last week, we focused on the call to pray in verses 1 to 7. Verse 8 kind of serves as a transition into what's next. And so he goes back to prayer, but he connects it to verse 9. And so uh, verse 9 actually doesn't have a verb. It's when he talks, begins to talk about women. He starts off and says, I desire all men in every place to pray. What was the theme last year? What was the one word? I'm going to give you a quick pop quiz on last week. What was the one word that was repeated over and over last week? All. Man, you guys are good. Uh, the preachers should get a bonus or something. Y'all are getting on this stuff in First Timothy. That's all good. Now, uh, all is good, right? And so all are called to, or he's prayed for all to be saved, for all to come to knowledge of the truth. So here he says, I desire men in every place to pray. It's continuing that desire of God to see his name raised up, his gospel exalted, Jesus lifted up in every place around the world with all peoples, all nations, and, and, and all tribes, and all tongues. So there's this desire for everyone to be exalted. But then he connects it over to verse 9, and he quickly shifts gears into this topic dealing with women. But let me say this before I move on. This idea of all, all people everywhere to, be pray, to pray, we're going to mention this a little bit later, but we've got a, uh, tonight we're going to have a time of um, all church prayer and worship. And so I want to invite you to come do what this says, that we would come and pray together. And so tonight, 6 p.m. right here, we're going to have a chance, just an all church vision night. We're going to share with you some of what's going on in the life of our church. Then we're going to circle up and we're just going to pray and we're going to worship together. And so I want to encourage you to do that. And then this week, we're actually setting aside the next three days for a season of fasting. And so we want to invite you to come and do that. If you don't know what fasting is, um, we really, we've got some resources on our website, some articles and things that'll help guide you in that and instruct you in that. But also at the tables on the way out, we've got a prayer guide of some things that really, it's not meant to be restrictive. You can pray as the Lord leads you, but it just gives you some stuff that specifically kind of targets your prayers and tells you how you can be praying for us. And so two ways, we're going to live that out this week. Um, we're going to pray tonight together as a church family. We're going to come together and just do what First uh, Timothy's been teaching us to do. And so we'll be in here at 6 p.m. Hope that you'll join us. Then this week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, I hope that you will fast. And if you've never done that, then you might start with just one meal. Skip a meal and spend that time praying. Uh, maybe you'll do a day. Some of you may do three days. I don't know what the Lord puts on your heart. Uh, but as a church family, we just want to seek the Lord. We want to pray. We want to live out the things that we're studying here in First Timothy. And then um, ask the Lord to um, to continue to come alongside us, provide us, and to be at work in our church, in our lives, and in our city. So uh, does that make sense tonight? All right, you can grab those handouts on the way out. They should be on the tables as you leave. Now you get to verse 9, and Timothy, uh, Paul begins to instruct Timothy and some other stuff, and he begins to talk to specifically to ladies. It's always a bit of an awkward thing as a man in our culture to preach a sermon that basically is directed at ladies. And yet, Paul gives us instructions here, and so we're going to go there. Um, culturally, let me tell you kind of where we're coming from in terms of Ephesus and the city uh, that the Ephesians, or, or the, the Timothy was pastoring in. In that city, culturally, there, there was a, a goddess named Artemis. There was one of the seven, her temple was one of the seven wonders of the world. And so there was, this place was steeped in goddess worship, and that really influenced all of the culture. So imagine if you've grown up in a city where you have one of the seven wonders of the world that kind of is the city, the central focus of the city, and there's a month-long holiday set aside to worship this goddess. And in that month-long holiday, people come from all over the region, from all over the Roman Empire, flood into your city, spend tons of money in the city, party and have a great time in the city. There's... Uh, there's uh, kind of theater and sporting events and all kinds of stuff that's happening. And everything stops for a month in order for people just to worship 
in, in, in this goddess of Artemis and in her temple and around her temple in the city of Ephesus. Now imagine if you grew up in that culture and you become a Christian and you no longer are, are, are obsessed with this goddess of Artemis, but you've now begun to worship this one named Jesus and, and you've shifted a culture. One of the things that they're dealing with in this text is you've got people that have grown up in a certain culture that as they move out, I mean, some of those old patterns of thinking, old ways of dressing, old ways of living, old ways of operating still are influencing the way in which they're approaching things. And yet now they've come into the church as Christians. Now, also during that time in the Roman Empire, it was a fascinating time that there was kind of this movement of really was kind of a, uh, reminds me a lot of kind of women's liberation movement. There were wealthy women who were becoming more mobile and more free in terms of their ability to move about the empire and go in different places. In the midst of that, they were kind of throwing off the shackles of some of the patriarchy uh, that, that they had lived within. And in the midst of uh, that, they were popularizing new styles of dress. In fact, they were kind of dressing immodestly and kind of flaunting their womanhood. They were, they were dressing more extravagantly. They were expending extreme amounts of money on their attire in order to kind of get others' attention. In the midst of that, they were also very sexually active outside of marriage. And interestingly enough, childbearing was actually something that began to be looked down upon amongst many of these women. And they were discarding babies because it, it got in the way of their ability to enjoy the kind of new life and new freedoms that they experienced. Uh, does that sound familiar at all to you? It's interesting to me that some things don't change, that some, some things seem to stay the same. That there's this desire for people to be able to throw off the shackles of some of these things in order to move in, in their own personal freedom. So here's where Paul begins to give, that's the context of the culture that Paul begins to give some instruction to Timothy. So notice what it is that Paul says. First, he says, ladies, uh, ladies, likewise, women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel and modesty and self-control, not with braided hair, gold, pearls, or costly attire, but with what is proper, with good works. So first, there's a command that women ought to adorn themselves. Uh, when you think of this term adorn, what it really means is it means, it actually comes from the word uh, cosmeo, which we get the word cosmetics from. It's talking about arranging something, putting in order, making something appear to be beautiful, making it, giving it an attractive appearance. And so when you adorn something, you're putting everything in a proper place in order to look, uh, in order to cause something to be attractive. Now, what it says, it says, but the women are to adorn themselves in respectable apparel. Respectable really means just fit in. It means don't, don't go so, so, so overboard to, to the sense that you've attracted everyone's attention and got everyone to look your way when you walk in the room. But also don't neglect your appearance to such an extent that you get everyone's attention when you walk in the room. So it kind of means avoiding the two extremes. Don't go in one way or the other. And so he talks about some of what that means in that culture. He says, not with braided hair, girl, gold, pearls, or, uh, or other fancy attire. Um, now, he's not saying you can never wear jewelry. There's lots of examples in the scriptures of women who wear jewelry. He's not saying you can't wear nice clothes. In fact, you look at kind of this model woman in Proverbs 31, it talks about she dresses herself in purple, meaning in, in royal, in, in regal type attire. So he's not saying you can't dress nice or you can't wear anything. He's just saying, don't make that the focus. Don't, don't be so extravagant that, uh, that, that you draw attention to yourself, that when you walk in the room, everyone looks in your direction because you've so dressed yourself up that it, uh, that it becomes distracting for everyone else from the, really the reason which, that, that, uh, that we're here. So ladies, let me just encourage you. You, you do need to adorn yourselves. It says adorn yourselves and, and fit in, look nice. Uh, don't, don't be afraid to put on something decent, to walk in, uh, to brush your hair, none of those things. He's not saying you can't go get your hair did and your nails done. Right? Like he's not saying you can't take the, the nicest cubic sarconium that guy's given you and wear it when you come to church. He's not, he's not saying you can't wear a string of pearls. He's, he's not saying you can't, uh, you, that you can't braid your hair. He's just saying don't make yourself the focus of everything and don't put everything you are physically and materially on display when you walk in because it's going to be distracting from the real purpose that we're here, which is to pray and to worship. So then he goes on, he says, with modesty. Modesty, the ancient roots of that word really have to do with shamefulness, meaning that you're not coming in with a sense of shamefulness because you're putting something, and probably is dealing with some kind of a promiscuity, possibly even kind of has history in prostitution, like someone who's coming in who's got a very different approach to life. And so later what that word came to mean was just dress with respect, dress with reserve, 
connects that with self-control, which is really discreetly, sensible, dressed with moderation, be self-disciplined. So do you see where he's going with this? Like, come in, be yourself, do your thing, but don't make everyone draw attention to yourself. And so here's what I know. In, in a world of Me Too and Church Too and everything else, there's a heightened focus on all of this stuff. There's a sense in which we're scared to talk about kind of standards and where we ought to be. And I want you to know there's definitely never something that someone has worn that's earned them any kind of abuse or neglect or lust or anything else. But ladies, you're also called to be respectable. That there's a balance there. And Scripture does put a balance there. And so let me just tell you, I've got a little daughter. And I love this little girl with all my heart. And as I raise this little girl and I think about that, let me just tell you what, what I'm gonna tell her in a, in a couple of years or what I imagine I will tell her in a couple of years as I think about kind of some of this instruction and what's here. First is don't be so naive as to think people won't notice you. Because when you walk in, ladies, people are gonna notice. When gals, little gals, young gals, when you go to school, guys are gonna notice you. People are, gonna, people are going to see you. They're going to need, so don't be so naive or clueless to think that no one's going to notice what you wear. It actually does matter. And don't be so confused that you think people will love you more if you dress a certain way. Someone who loves you based on how you dress doesn't really love you. And so don't be so confused to think that how you dress is going to earn someone's real love of you or not. Don't be so unhealthy that you need, that you need people's attention to fill a void in your life. Ladies, if you have to dress in a certain way to get someone's attention because there's a hole in your life, I want you to know other people's attention is not going to fill that hole. You need to let the Lord fill that gap in your life. That You need to let the Lord sustain you and strengthen you so that you're not needy for someone else's attention or affection. Don't be so arrogant that you use all the attention for status. See, some people know that, that they get attention. They know that they can attract others by the way in which they dress. And so don't give yourself to that in order to kind of move up the rungs of society or popularity or attention seeking within our world. And then lastly, don't be so sensual that you desire people to take advantage of you. Don't, don't use your sexuality or sensuality in the way you dress because you're a slave to your flesh and you want to enjoy the pleasures of that. And so that, I think, is what Paul's saying. He's saying, women, you need to be respectable. Respect yourself and earn the respect of others by the way you dress. Don't flaunt yourself in order to either fill needs, fill gaps, um, or in, in order to get, get something that you can do through physical appearance. People may be attracted, but they won't see that young lady as respectable. So can I give you a, a word as you think about this? And some of us, I know we're coming from completely different places, but when I was, uh, when I was in college... I still remember the day when I looked across campus on a late August day, and I saw my wife walking across campus. And I remember, not my wife then, uh, just saw this young lady walking across campus and uh, the, the tanness of, our, of Central Texas in, uh, in the middle of August. And um, that first, first week of her freshman year, I remember seeing her and, you know, wiping the sweat off my eyes in August in Texas outside, but looking and seeing her and just being attracted to her physically. And so when you look, guys, you're going to be attracted to a gal physically, and you're going to begin to, to notice her. And that usually is the first thing that gets your attention. It certainly was for me. Here's the thing. That wasn't all that began to attract me. As I started to watch her, as I started to get to know her, I started to see other things. And so I started to hear other things that, <clears throat> that people would say about her. My roommates had classes with her. I'd hear things that people would say. I'd watch her. And I began to discover other things. I began to see her at Bible studies where she was always dragging some other sorority sister to come be with her at these Bible studies. I began to serve in a backyard Bible club. And I looked over and I was like, oh, she's here too, serving these kids in the inner city. And I found out that on the way to church on Sunday mornings, she would take donuts by the little kids that were selling papers on the street corners and just give them donuts as she drove on the way to church. And all these things, are there's something going off in my head. I'm going, wow, you know what? That physically beautiful young lady has also got a lot of character. There's also some beauty on the inside that matches what's on the outside. And, and sure, physically, I noticed other things too. I noticed she held her head up. I noticed she kept her shoulders back, that she stood upright. I noticed that she was bold in terms of her faith. And as I began to see this kind of external beauty that matched this internal beauty, and my, my desire for her just increased. And, and that's what I think Paul is pushing us to understand is that, that what's on the inside needs to match what's on the outside. And so, sure, be respectable on the outside. But what he says is, you're really to adorn yourself with what? With good works. 
Adorn yourself with godliness. Adorn yourself with spiritual holiness that's set apart to God. And that's what ultimately we are to be about. And so I think it's an important thing for us to do, an important thing for us to think about. So now we get to verse 11 and 12. Paul's kind of dealt with physical appearance and how you come in and that your focus is supposed to be on the internal, not the external. And so then what does he say in verses 11 and 12? Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. And there's the trigger word, right? There's the one that that always gets you in trouble when you come to church and you begin to talk about that word. Uh, Anyone triggered here? Most of us have developed kind of an allergy to the idea of submission. And that's not just female, that's guys, gals, everyone. This idea that I am somehow underneath someone else's leadership or direction, we've kind of developed this allergy that's like, man, I'm just uncomfortable. I'm kind of like, oh, I don't know that I want to be around that, that thing that's there. But here's what I want to do today. But before we throw it out, let's break it down. So Paul says two things. First, he says, learning is encouraged. Ladies, I want you to learn. I want you to grow. I want you to spiritually be taught in a way that allows you to learn. So a woman should learn. And he says, learn quietly. He's not talking about that you're not allowed to ever say anything. Uh, That's actually a misuse of the text. What he's saying is you should learn in a way that receives instead of tries to instruct. And so there's a sense in which you're quietly receiving instruction. The actual, the term there means to remain mentally calm, meaning you're not reacting against it, but you're receiving the teaching and the truth of the, of the church. So two things he mentions here. First, learning's encouraged. Secondly, teaching is restricted. He says, I do not permit a woman to teach. That's where we get, uh, you guys may be asking some questions. Um, how many of you have ever had a woman who taught you anything? I'm going to guess every single one of you. Um, If you're sitting next to your mama, your hand better be high or you're going to be in trouble, right? Like you're not eating lunch, dinner, or breakfast tomorrow if your hand's not raised, if you're sitting next to mama right now. So I'm just going to tell you, even if you're not sure, just stick your hand up for your own safety and your own good. Um, So what's Paul saying when he says, I got a bug flying around. When Paul says, uh, what does he say when he says, it's going to drive me. Okay, sorry, distracted. Um, Focus. Um, what's Paul saying when he talks about, uh, I, I do not permit a woman to teach? Notice there's complementary infinitives that he gives here. There's two phrases that go together, and this is really important to understand what kind of teaching Paul's talking about. When he says, I do not permit a woman to teach and to assume authority over. Those are connected. The way the, the sentence is actually constructed there, those two are linked. And so they always go together one way or the other, and, and it, just in the way it's, it's put together. So he says, I, I do not permit a woman to teach and exercise authority. It's saying that there's a connection between the authority she's exercising and the teaching and what she's doing. He's talking about a particular kind of teaching, not any instruction, not any teaching whatsoever. He's saying, he's really talking about the teaching that t- takes place within the corporate gathering of the church. So whenever the church comes together as a whole under the authority of the elders and the overseers and the teaching of the church, that this is supposed to be a role that's reserved for men. And so that's what Paul is trying to do in the construction of this. He wants you to know those two things go together. He's talking about the regular worship gathering of the church in a room like this where the church is speaking over certain matters. Now let's go back. Remember when we talked about the the context of 1 Timothy? Do you remember when we said that we're kind of where Timothy is starting in, verse, in chapter 1? He says, do not permit anyone to teach. He's really guarding and worried about the protection of the gospel and the protection of the truth, that the truth would be lifted up and that, uh, that we would not be led astray. And he's saying that he's filled with concern over the gospel mission of the church, that it would move forward. That's chapter 1. Chapter 3, what's he talk about? Elders and deacons. He's going to go to the ruling offices of the church. So between chapter one, where he says, we have to guard the gospel because our mission to love all, to proclaim the gospel, to tell the truth to everyone is essential and important and needs to be priority amongst us. Then in chapter three, he's going to say, here's the offices that the church has given in order to protect and guard the church. And here's what we do. So here in chapter two, he starts off and he says, let's pray. Pray that God would work. Pray that God would save all. Pray that God would be at work. And then he, before he gets to talking about overseers and those that are the pastors and elders of the church, he stops and he talks about ladies. And he says, this is the one area in which um, women are not, not supposed to operate. Now, it's interesting when he, in chapter three, when he gets to overseers, he's going to say that overseers have to be able to teach, meaning they have to be able to give instruction in the gospel. They have to be able to guard the truth and to speak the truth as well. He also will later say that teachers will incur Teachers in this sense will incur a stricter judgment. 
I feel the weight of that sometimes. That you just know that there's a, there's a command that says, and if you lead someone astray, it's going to incur a judgment in some sense that I will be under, that someone who teaches as I do would be under. So Paul's referring here specifically to a particular role, that of pastor elder within the church. He's not talking about any teaching anywhere. Now here's what I, what I have to acknowledge, that ungodly men have used this verse to try to manipulate and control women for centuries. The people have taken this and they've abused the text. They've taken it and twisted it. They've taken it and manipulated it. They've taken it and applied it in situations where it didn't apply in order to try to keep women under, under, under control and to keep them quiet. And I want you to know that has nothing to do with what Paul's talking about here at all. There's no place for that within Christian circles, whatever. Christ-like leadership means giving up your preferences to serve others. It's absolutely not about controlling or manipulating someone else. Also, he's not saying that women in general should submit to men in general. Like, that, that's not what Paul's saying. He's saying in this one role, in this one place, in this one setting, within the context of the church, this is where this is supposed to be ordered and that God has ordered this in a specific way. But women in business leadership, women in universities and the arts and government and other places, it, this does not apply to that situation. It's not the same thing at all. He's really talking about the house rules within, uh, and so other arenas of life, we're not to take this and kind of take this mantle and put it down and press it down in other arenas of our world, but ultimately it's meant to be something for the church. In fact, 1 Timothy 3, next chapter, he says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. So in some sense, what he's talking about here is these are sort of house rules for the church. These are, these are house rules for how we're to operate, but they're not things that we're supposed to impose on everyone else out there in other, in other realms and other worlds. Now, I think the church has things we can offer to, to instruct the world. I think the church has wisdom to give the world, but that's an entirely different conversation from what, the, from what Paul's talking about here. Um, so 1 Timothy, what's he saying? He's saying that, uh, that women, you're called to adorn yourselves with good works and with God's godliness, but there's one good work that God has not given you responsibility to adorn yourself with, and that's the role of elder or pastor. And so you're called to adorn yourself, but just not in that one, in that one area. He's not asking you to have responsibility for that. Now, let me ask you why, because I think that's the question that um, everyone has, right? Like, why is this? Well, it's, it's not, you know, is it because women are less godly? Uh, no, I know a bunch of you jokers and your wives are way more godly than you are, right? Like, no, it's not because women, yeah, there you go. Man, you're owning it, I love it. Uh, it's not because women are less godly. It's not because women are less creative. It's not because women are less uh, skilled in leadership or less successful or less entrepreneurial or, or less intelligent. It's not because of any of those reasons. In fact, um, I've never gone to a church where there were more men than women. Like that just, I've never seen that church in my lifetime. There's all, always more women at church. You know, when we meet with ladies in our church and we have a, a task or ministry that we want to start and we talk with them, it's amazing to me how many ladies will just be like, yeah, give me a deadline, I got it. And they'll just run. And guys are like, are you going to meet? Are we going to do? Are we going to do? Like, you know, oftentimes ladies are like, sure, I got it. And they'll just take off and go get things done. And, and it's so amazing the ministry that happens around this place because of what ladies do. Churches, if, if ladies disappeared from churches, churches would cease. And I really mean that. Like, I don't know that they would function in any form or fashion if ladies were not leading out in ministry in all kinds of ways. And so uh, many of you know exactly what I'm talking about. And so many times as I talk with people, it's the ladies that are on fire for the Lord and they're in the word and they're diving these things and they're, they're kind of trying to get their husbands to come along. They're like, dude, you should get excited about this stuff too. And the, the ladies' hearts have been stirred and spiritual matters, and they've led, oftentimes been forced to lead out because their husbands are zoned out. I mean, it's not because ladies are less than. In fact, we know from Scripture that, that we're equal. The issue here is not ability, it's responsibility. That God's not, he's not asking you to, man, to bear that mantle and that responsibility. It's important just as you think about the, the Bible, how prominent a role women play throughout the Bible uh, I really wanted to spend more time here, but for the sake of it, I don't have it. You go Old Testament and you look at Miriam, you look at Esther, you look at Deborah, 
you know, and you look at these strong women that lead out in all kinds of ways that God uses as, as prophets, as teachers, as leaders in different ways. Uh, you look at the woman described in Proverbs 31. She's this business savvy, entrepreneurial, strong kind of person that's handling things on the home front and the work front. And it's intimidating if you read it. Like, dude, I don't even want to man. I don't want to try to handle all that stuff she's doing uh, because she's leading out in all kinds of ways. Jesus uh, discipled many women and oftentimes you see the ladies are leading the way. In fact, at the end of Jesus' life, when he's heading to the cross, um, the men all disappear. Mark runs away buck naked because um, he gets surprised. Peter denies Jesus three times. All the disciples are nowhere to be found. You know who's sitting there at the cross looking? It's women. You know who's there at the resurrection when Jesus comes out of the tomb? It's women. You know who goes and tells the world that the, that the Messiah who died on a cross was buried for three, three days and was raised again? You know who first made the announcement that he had risen again was? It was women. God throughout scripture highlights and elevates women and their role in ministry and what they've done in the sake of the church. You see in the New Testament, this over and over, Paul talks often about the women in his church. And then just to mention a few of these, there's Priscilla and Aquila. This couple that God's used and almost always their names come together and they're leaders in Paul's ministry and they show up over and over and over throughout Paul's writings and through the book of Acts and you see them leading out and in some instances, the man's name first and those seem to be just kind of the generic ones. But uh, so often these two are called teachers and they pull one guy aside and instruct him in that. And in every one of those scenarios, the, the wife's name is mentioned first meaning she was probably the stronger teacher. She probably had a better ability to navigate the gospels in these contexts of these relationships. So we're not saying that, that women don't have gifts or can't, can't teach at all. It's just saying in this one role, this is a place that God has really restricted that. In fact, I think it's important to acknowledge Galatians 2, 3.28. Let me just give you some ways in which we know that men and women are equals, biblically and scripturally, and according to the gospel. Yeah, Galatians 3.28. For as many of you who received into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. For you are all one in Christ, Jesus. And if you're Christ, you're Abraham's offspring, heirs to the promise. So we all inherit the, 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 the reality of God's salvation, regardless of male or female. That God's salvation comes to each of us equally and there is no distinction that's there. It's interesting to me, though, when you think about really the, the things you see in Scripture. So let me just be really clear about how equal we are. Men and women both bear the image of God. Men and women are both saved by grace through faith. Men and women are both adopted as children of God. Men and women are both inhabited by the Spirit of God. Men and women both receive spiritual gifts without difference according to gender. But we all receive, all, all, all the gifts are, display, are, are distributed by God to each men and women. Uh, men and women are both called to build up the body of Christ. Men and women both lead in ministry and life. We're equal value. It's just, and Paul talks about this one area, there's distinct roles. So there's equality, but difference. Equality does not mean sameness. Being at the same level does not mean that we're identical, that there is distinction between male and female. And yet we're both equals. You know, it's interesting, we're all called to teach in some ways, Right? Uh, go to another verse. Colossians 3 says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. So we're all called to admonish and to teach one another in the body of Christ, which means all of us have that responsibility. Paul clearly is not contradicting himself. He made both those statements. Here he's talking about a particular role in which we're called to teach. So what is, what is it Paul say? What's the restriction he gives? He says that, that women are to remain responsive to God's word rather than reactive to God's word. So as he talks about the word to listen and submission, what he's saying is not that you need to listen in a beat down manner, cowering in the corner. What he's saying is you listen in a way that's responsive to God's word, not reactive against God's word. He's saying that we're to receive, the women are to receive instruction in the context of the church's meeting rather than to do the instructing in that setting. And he's saying she's to resist exercising authority rather than trying to take charge because it's connected with teaching that's connected with authority. And so that's really the call that, that Paul puts forward and explains um, what it is that we're to do. Now, it's interesting. When you think about just a model for this, let me just um, 
go quickly through this, but when you think about uh, how this, this might play out in terms of your understanding how we can be equals and yet have distinct roles, think, with, think for a second about the Trinity. You have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. All equal, all equally God, and yet they have distinct roles. It says that God sends the Son, that Christ came to earth. He became one of us. It was Christ who followed, the Lord, followed his Father's leadership and said he didn't ever do anything the Father didn't want him to do. And yet there's this mutual admiration and glorification of them. It says Jesus is always pointing people to his Father, and his Father and the Holy Spirit's always highlighting Jesus. And there's kind of this mutual effect that's happening. But Jesus is not less than the Father, but they have different roles to play. The Father didn't die on the cross. The Son died on the cross. So there was distinctiveness, there was difference, and yet they were both equal. They were both equally God. The Father and Son are both equally eternally God. And so there's a model for us in how that might work out and don't have time to play, to, to kind of dissect that and, and dice that up. But let me ask you, let's, let's think about why. And one of the things you hear in our culture is some people would say, well, these verses, Paul was just talking about some of the issues going on in the city of Ephesus. This was just culturally determined. This was Paul dealing with uh, first century. He was dealing with the way the world was then. He had to give these instructions for the way that, that was then, but that doesn't really apply to now. Um, and so that's a common argument that you will hear from others saying, look, the, that instruction that Paul was giving doesn't really apply to us. It just applied in the first century, but we've kind of moved beyond that and we don't have the same issues that they had. And so we're now free to operate in a different way. Paul doesn't really, though, give us that option. Look at me at verses 13 and 14. Paul's going to tell us what it's rooted in. He says, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Eve was not deceived, but the woman was deceived. And I'm sorry, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So Adam, ta- I mean, Paul takes it and goes back to Adam and Eve. And so he goes back to Adam and Eve because he says, this is not just something about this one day that I'm dealing with in this one church. He says, this is something that's tied to creation order. It's tied to God's very foundation of the world, God's design for the world, the way God made the world and created the world and began the world and, and, and ordered the world. This, this idea is actually linked to that. So verse 13, when he talks about creation, he, he's really going back to Genesis 1, right? And so when he says that, uh, in, in verse 13, Adam was formed first and then Eve. He's going back to Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, we're really dealing with God's ordering of the universe. And he, fills, he creates the earth and he fills it. He puts man there. And he says over and over, it was good, it was good, it was good. He gets to creating of Adam. He said, it's very good. But then he says, man should not live alone. And he says, he needs a helper. And he goes and he creates out of Adam's rib, puts Adam to sleep, takes a rib and fashions a woman. And not, not from above him that he would be under her, not from below, but from his side that he would be right next to her as a helper. And it's interesting, biblically, it says he created them what? Male, female. There was distinction. There, 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 was, there, there, there was gender. There was a male part and a female part. And there was complementary people that fit together so that they could fulfill the mission of the earth. God was going to tell them that your job is to be my vice regents, that you're to bear my glory, bear my image, bear my glory throughout the entire universe, that you're going to go and fill and multiply and fill the earth with little worshipers of me. And so God says, you're created in my image, men and women, both created in the image of God, are meant to multiply, to fill the earth with those who bear the image of God and give testimony to his glory and his goodness everywhere they go. That's God's design, and that's what he intended it to be. And so Paul says this idea is linked to the fact that God created Adam and created a helper for Adam that were equal and yet distinct and different as male and female. You see where he's going with this? Does that make sense? You with me? All right. So that's where Paul links this to and starts it. And he says that God created humanity to fill a purpose, and both together are needed in order to fulfill the purpose they they had. Now, let me ask you this. Is God the sovereign Lord of the universe? Is there a creator who has made things as we see them? Is there a male and a female that have been ordered in the world by God's design in order to fulfill his purposes in the world? Okay, then we stick with that. Then that's what we believe to be true because we're Christians and we trust that God is over all of this. Has God spoken about gender? Yes. So no matter how crazy our world can get, we're going to go with 
We're going to go with Genesis when it comes to understanding the way in which the world works. And it gets confusing, and it gets difficult, and it can be hard out there. The problem so often is that we depart from what God has told us to do, and it leads us astray. Now let me ask you this. Why is it so hard for us to get along and figure this thing out? I think that's why you get to the next verse, verse 14. Verse 14 begins to talk about transgression, right? So what, where, does, where does the transgression of Adam and Eve take place? So we've gone from Genesis 1, now we got to Genesis 3, right? What happens in Genesis 3? <clears throat> Satan leads Eve astray, Eve leads Adam astray. They both depart, they both transgress, they both sin. And because of that, um, it says in Genesis 2, they were naked and not ashamed. They were together, they walked in the garden, they talked to the Lord, they had healthy relationship with one another, healthy relationship with God Almighty. There, there was this kind of union and beautiness to the world and in, uh, in chapter 2, where there was no shame at all. Chapter 3, sin enters the world. All of a sudden, what do you see? Man, they're hiding. They're pointing fingers. They're blaming one another. They're distancing themselves from God. Everything has gotten disrupted. Everything's gotten broken. And because of that, God comes and says, now I have to judge because sin has entered the world. And so God gives a judgment to the world, and he begins to, uh, to explain really what the ramifications and the consequences of their actions are going to be. And this is where I think it's really important. Verse uh, chapter 3 you get to verse 15, Genesis 3.15. It says, and, and I will put enmity, this is, uh, this is God, and he's talking to the serpent. He's judging the serpent for leading Eve astray, and then he's going to judge Eve, and he's going to judge Adam. And oh, there's consequences for everyone that was a part of this in terms of what they did. And he says in verse 15, um, I, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So he's talking to Satan and he says to, to Satan, to the enemy of God, that there's going to be a battle, and a battle that takes place. And somehow through the offspring of a woman, through a human offspring that's passed, that, that comes in the future, he's going to somehow defeat you. You're going, to, you're, going to, you're going to sting his heel, but he's going to stomp on your head and he's going to crush you. So hang on to that. Then he goes on to Eve and he says, consequences of your sin and your action, what you've done. He says, I surely will multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you will bring forth children. Um, ladies, any of you given birth? Any of you want meds? Like, so that happened, right? So it, it, it did work out that way. Um, I, I will multiply your pain and childbearing. You will surely have pain in bringing forth children. And then he says, your desire will be contrary to your husband." Meaning your desire will be to rule over your husband, but he will rule over you. So one of the consequences of sin in our world was this perfect creation that God gave of male and female in perfect union that got together and worked together as equals who were distinct and different, but yet got along and functioned in a healthy way. All that began to break down. And now you've got male and female that are at odds with one another. You've got, you've got this battle, this desire of, I will desire to rule over you. Can I just tell you, I was listening in some of my study this week, I was looking, this word desire, you, tells, God tells Eve, your desire will be to rule over your husband and his will be to rule over you. That word desire shows up two other times, the best I can tell in the, in the Old Testament. Can I tell you where they are? Um, one of them is actually speaks of sexual desire. It's in the Song of Solomon. And so you've got this, this couple that comes together and as they do, there's this man's sexual desire. He says he wants to dominate you physically in, in a context of a marriage relationship. He's saying, I want to consummate my marriage. And so there's this strong desire for me to, to be with you. And so there's that sense in which it's talked about. But there's another place where it talks about desire, where, the, where that word and that term is used. And it takes place right after, or it takes place in Genesis 4. So Genesis 3 is where we're talking about this. The same writer, next, ver, next chapter of Genesis 4 talks about this way. And it says, if you do not do well, this is um, talking to, to Cain and Abel, he's saying, if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door and its desire is against you and you must rule over it. So the same term, it's interesting, the same term that says the, the battle that's going to take place between men and women, that men, the women will want to desire over their husbands, is used in the very next chapter to say, sin is desiring to be your master, that you might be its slave and you're going to have to battle against it. So there's a connection that takes place here. And this is why I think Paul says in verse 14 
that, that in the midst of this order, that this is part of the way God is in, in, in our world. In, in verse, I'm sorry, verse 13, in God's created order, in Genesis 1, that's before sin entered the world, right? He says, so this, this idea that the pastor, elder, teacher is ultimately supposed to be male, he says this was, is rooted in, in creation before sin entered the world. And then the very next verse, he says, and after sin entered the world, that also is a reason for this. So we can't say, well, this is, uh, sometimes what you'll hear people say is, well, God's broken down all that because Christ has restored all things. We no longer, we can go back to Genesis 1. And Paul says, nope, it was in the order before the fall. And Paul says it was also there after the fall, meaning this is part of the way God has ordained things. So friends, here's what I realize as we talk about this. This is part of why it's been so bad between men and women. This is part of why marriage is hard. This is part of why you have battles in our culture. It's part of why they have battles in the first century. It's part of why we have battles in our century. It's part of why we're going to have battles in the next century if the Lord tarries and doesn't come back to take us home. Now, there will always be struggle in a broken and fallen world between, between men and women. Here's, I think, what we have to think about is what do we do in the midst of that? I mean, do we just throw off all the shackles and run in our own way? Or do we submit to what God has called us to do? And I think we have to trust that the Lord is sovereign. If the Lord, if the Lord of God has spoken, and he said there's male and female, and there's order to the universe, order to the world, and that influences the way in which we're to lead in our day, then we're going to have to trust him. And that's the best I know to do, is to take what God has said and to, to trust it and to walk in that. Let me end with this. Um, it's interesting when you look at, at the scriptures and you go back and uh, I think it's important for us to acknowledge that we need God's truth to guide us in all things. You go back and you look at Genesis 1 through 11 and there's so many foundational things and if you don't know your Bible, you don't orient yourself, then it's hard for you to know how to interpret your day and how to interpret your times. And one of the things you see as you look at Genesis was right after this, uh, this, this thing develops, you start to see this pattern show up. And I want to point us to this because I think it's important for us to think about which, uh, how we want to begin to operate. So Adam and Eve begin to have offspring. There's uh, descendants that begin to flow. You see two groups emerge in the book of Genesis that, that begin to develop. And in Genesis 4, you see ver, uh, verse, Genesis 4.26 says, at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So in the garden, the Lord was with them. Once sin entered, they began to hide from the Lord, distance from the Lord. There was separation. God provided for them. He actually sacrificed for them, reunited, gave them a new, a new deal, but sent them out of the garden. They had to go learn how to make their way in a world where there was pain and childbearing, where Adam's work was not easy, but it said that his work was going to be hard and he was going to have to slave and sweat and be exhausted by his work in order to provide for his family. So they got sent out into a broken world where things were not as they were supposed to be. And in the midst of that world, what happens? Two groups emerge. One says they begin to call in the name of the Lord. What's he saying? Some people recognized, I need God's help. I'm going to cry out to the Lord. I'm going to run to him. I'm going to trust him in all these things. But there's another group that shows up. Genesis 11, when you get to the Tower of Babel, another group shows up and says, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men have built. So another group, one group says, begin to call upon the name of the Lord. Another group says, let us make a name for ourselves. Friends, that's still the two groups we have in our world and we've got to decide which one we're in. Do we want to be those who are trying to, through self-expression, through self-determination, make a name for ourselves? Or are we going to be those that trust the Lord and call upon the name of the Lord? And scripture says we should be in the group that calls, that asks for help, and that runs to the Lord and trusts him. So we've got one verse left. Lots of stuff here today. I mean, give me one more verse. You with me? Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. What is Paul going, saying here? This is one of the most confusing verses in, honestly, in the whole New Testament. Definitely one of the most confusing in this verses I read. Eight or nine commentaries, and they were all over the map. 
as I look at this. Let me tell you what I think, what I think it's pointing to because of the context. Because he goes in verse 13, Genesis 1, we were created this way and that's the way we're to operate. Genesis, in verse 14, he goes Genesis 3, because of the fall, this is how we operate. I think verse 15, he's still connecting it back to that same passage in Genesis 3. You remember the verse, Genesis 3, 15? It's a, uh, God speaking to Satan and he's saying, Satan, one day all of your plans will be, will be disrupted because an offspring of the woman, someone who's coming, a child that's coming through a woman is going to destroy you. He's going to crush your head. Uh, theologically, we call that the proto-euangelion, the first gospel. And what it's saying, it's, it's prophecy that God's saying that ultimately there's going to be an offspring of a woman who's going to rise up. His name's Jesus. And though he's come, he's going to create victory He's going to eradicate sin and death. He's going to eliminate all the problems that we have in the world. He's going to undo all the effects of the fall. So everything that was undone through the sin of man in, uh, in Genesis 3, Christ himself through his death, through his resurrection, through his kingdom, and through his coming back again to make all things right and all things new, he's going to one day restore us to a right kingdom where there's no more conflict between male and female, where there's no more distance between people and God, where there's no more disruption caused by sin and death, but where there's no more tears, no more sorrow, no more brokenness. That day is coming, and Jesus is going to do it. And so Genesis 3.15, at the very beginning of the Bible, God prophesies and says, Satan, one day you're going to sting him, Meaning you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna bite him on the heel. And Christ is going to die. He's going to go to a tomb. But he's going to crush your head. He, he, Christ came out of the tomb victorious over sin and death. Holding nothing back. He punched death in the face. He, 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 he gave a death sentence to Satan. And one day he says he's coming back to make all things new. So until that day, and we meet in a church like this, we gather and we trust that God's order and God's design makes sense. So we gather as male and female, and we know that we're equals, that in the gospel we're all his sons, that we all are inhabited by his spirit, that we all have work to do, that we're all a part of his mission. And yet there's distinction, and we're not the same. There's a distinctiveness that, that is God-ordained, and it's actually beautiful and good and healthy. And if we learn to live in it, we'll experience rest and joy in God's mission in a way that we couldn't ever do so apart from that. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to come and to talk um, about some tough stuff today. And yet, Father, we trust that it is good because you are good. Father, we trust your guidance and your direction, and we ask for your help um, as we live out these things in the context of our city and our day. Father, we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.